0: Standard issue listeners get ten percent off their first month at BetterHelp dot com slash standard. That's Better H E L P dot com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 124 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and having ventured out a bit more recently, I am staggered by how many people don't seem to know how the respiratory system works. Put the mask over your noses, footnotes. What is going on, Hannah? What, to be honest, I haven't
1: seen that. I haven't really ventured that far recently, and nobody in my local shop seems to be wearing them
0: at all. Wow. Okay. I yeah. think I'm less angry with the people who aren't wearing them at all because, you know, they've made the statement. They could be exempt. I doubt it, but they could be. But the ones who have got them round their wrist, round their chin, yeah. <laughs> or just under their noses are doing my head
1: I was actually in the co-op the other day and they had a, you know, they have, hey, this is co-op music radio. They had like a special announcement playing in there that said, if someone's not wearing a mask, that you shouldn't approach them because they may have exemption, which I don't know. I don't know how I felt about that. we've got more on the co-op later, to be honest. But I did think, oh, come on, can we not? I don't think anyone should approach anyone without a mask full stop, to be honest. yeah. Without reminding people that there is the opportunity to say, "Oh yeah, I've got exemptions." Anyway, I'm Hannah Tullivi, and I'm very grumpy. And also, I can only currently shower at night without the lights on, and in a tiny pair
0: of denim shorts.
1: <laughs> yeah, just just sobbing. Yeah, just like a never nude. Why? What's happened? Well, you'd been to my house. You know, I've got an incredibly small bathroom. Wherever you are in the bathroom, basically. You could be seen through a window. And helpfully, whoever fitted my window didn't put one of those frosted glass ones. So I have to have a blind. And the guy who lived in the house before us was very bad at DIY. And so the top bit where the blind goes is mostly not wall. It's mostly filler. And my blind finally fell down on Thursday. And I just haven't had the time or the inclination to rehang a blind. To be honest, in a wall that's mostly destroyed, it's quite a big job. So I've got three options, you know, do that job or also get the stuff that goes, you know, you can get that plastic stuff that clings to the window. Yes. But then it always gets really bubbles and it looks like shit and it's really frustrating and it sticks to you. So that's option B or option C is to just... You know the path of least resistance just shower forever at night in the dark with the lights off
0: I like the idea of the fact that that cellophane window guard stuff might stick to you and that would be solution d just always have that on <laughs> yeah yeah good point like you've blurred um, yourself
1: out <laughs> <laughs> but you know me I've managed to live without an oven all year and I can get one now I just can't be fucking bothered
0: I'm just amazed you've got used to the taste of boiled pizza it's horrific mm.
1: oh my god that's repulsive
0: later on i catch up with author hannah begbie to chat about why women stay silent around abuse from the hands of powerful men something she tackles beautifully in her new novel blurred lines
1: i talk to standard issue regular yosra osman about what happens when your favorite film becomes problematic and we revive classic standard issue staple rated or dated back from when we were a magazine Which is good news for you, but bad news for horses, as we're starting with Braveheart, which was released this week in 1995.
0: And it is four days long, mostly battle (laughs) scenes, but more on that later. First, portmanteaus galore, a terrifying rise in gun ownership in America, and a brave new roar. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush
1: Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where the culture war looks so hot and angry you'd be mistaken for thinking it had been shagging Byron without a condom. Oh,
0: That is, I mean, that is... An image. Brutal. Where to
1: start, eh? Maybe with a slanging match between well-known belligerente Andrew Neil, this time in his capacity as publisher of The Spectator, and the co-op. A generally well-regarded organisation which hasn't really seen a scandal since 2013 when the guy running Co-op Bank turned out to be on crystal meth.
0: If you're running a bank, you don't want to be taking a drug with such diminishing returns as crystal meth. (laughs) (laughs) It's not good for your image.
1: That's like an economics and a drugs joke in the same go. Yeah, Quick, tweet it at Susie Gage. So, (laughs) where did it start? On Twitter, of course, silly, with just one tweet asking the co-op why it was advertising in a, and I'd like to make clear this is their accusation, not mine, transphobic publication. The co-op responded initially asking for more information and then, two days later, said it would no longer place adverts with The Spectator. In steamed Neil like a dumped boyfriend <laughs> announcing that the co-op was actually now banned from advertising and that he never liked them anyway <laughs> The next few days was lost to a Barney, which took in Douglas Murray, Mermaids, any number of people with thoughts on how companies should spend their sweet, sweet advertising dollar and angry types claiming they were about to cancel all their dealings with the co-op, stopping just shy of digging up any dead relatives they'd buried. So (laughs) what if we learn? Well, disclaimer time, I'm likely not on the same page as you, given I'm a journalist currently supported by sweet, sweet advertising cash. Which, to be fair, is about 99% of journalists. So perhaps more relevantly, I'm also not arrogant enough to believe that my views will remain forever on the right side of history. So while I absolutely support everybody's right to campaign against any publication they dislike, shit knows there's enough media bastards to pick from. I'm not going to feed a beast that could destroy me. Personally, I think the lesson is for companies not to blow up Twitter by responding to one tweet from an account with 300 or so followers. Or, if you do
0: want to, take it off Twitter for fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's a lot of companies employing fresh-faced youth to do their social media? I would say that,
1: and in most circumstances when something like this happens, it is. It's the fact that social media, given it's such a massively public facing task, is quite often given to the intern. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But in this case, there was two days between those two tweets, which suggests that somebody else was consulted in the decision making process. Somebody higher up than the person on social media, you would think. Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. I did see it. It was quite the spat. There were toys outside of everyone's pram. <laughs> yeah. OK, we've not said this word for ages, but here goes nothing. Let's talk Brexit, one of the most loaded portmanteaus since Russell Brand's testosterousers. Yes, the UK formally left the EU in January, but we've continued to follow rules set in Brussels during a transition period, while discussions over a long term trade agreement continue, which means Brexit is still happening, with us currently due to crash out mega hard when that mm. transition period ends on December the 31st. Now then, I don't know if you remember January, which was simultaneously yesterday and 12 years ago, but back in January, our Prime Minister Boris Johnson, that genuinely never gets any easier to say, Uh signed a withdrawal agreement with the EU. The withdrawal agreement is an international treaty and legally binding. A lot of it is about borders, which is why the Irish, with the full backing of the EU, were very keen to get the arrangements for the Irish border nailed down in this agreement. Because it's a legally binding treaty, and yes, there's a reason I'm saying that again, it means the UK can't worm its way out of the deal without risking our international reputation as a trustworthy nation that stands by its own legal commitments. Hmm. (laughs) Well, apparently, for our 80-strong majority Tory government, that is just throwing down a gauntlet. And wait for it, news just in, but utterly fucking predictable, the government is tabling new legislation that will override parts of the withdrawal agreement in areas including state aid for business and Northern Ireland customs. Who needs a reputation as a trustworthy nation that stands by its own legal commitments? Not us, cocksuckers! So Downing Street have said it is a standby plan in case trade talks fail, whereas EU Chief Negotiator Michel Barnier accused the UK of wanting, and I quote, the best of both worlds on trade. Do you need to cough? No, I'm literally just
1: <laughs> holding, holding my face in absolute horror.
0: <laughs> it is, as ever, Monday as we record, talks resume tomorrow, so Tuesday, and this can only bode for them going really well, right? It's the eighth round. What could go wrong? Oh my God. Anyway, Hannah, what's going on in America? Cheer me up. My eyes.
1: <laughs> my eyes. Yeah, it's like a huge flaming pile of rubbish that people are trying to put out by slinging fresh turds at it. Oh, there's, oh. there's just too much stuff to cover in one section. Perhaps we'll need to get Kate McCabe in to talk about this in more depth at some point. But in the meanwhile, let's focus on one of the biggest stories since our last BT, which is what the hell is happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin? And let's start by saying it's very complex and possibly far too early to say with any confidence exactly what did happen. But let's say that things started and little rabbit ears around that with the shooting of a black man, Jacob Bell, by police, who put seven bullets in him, leaving the 29-year-old paralysed. And while the narrative certainly appears to be less straightforward than the one that was first posed in the immediate aftermath, I'm going to say I fail to see any situation in which the only option left to a police officer is to fire freely at a suspect's back in front of his young children. Yeah, agreed. That's just where I am. I'm with you. As the city erupted in protest, looting and arson, a second major incident followed in the days after, as 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse left his home in Illinois, armed with a semi-automatic weapon, starting a chain of events that left two men dead and another injured. I'm not even going to attempt to explain what happened here, but if you're looking for facts... I'd suggest you seek out the timeline, the New York Times, painstakingly constructed of events. I'll put a link in the episode notes for you. Well, I say I will. Let's hopefully we'll remember to. Or I suppose you could feel free to believe either of the current dominant narratives. A, he was a total hero, or B, he was a white supremacist.
0: They don't seem like they're mutually exclusive at all.
1: (laughs) Rittenhouse has been charged, so the truth may well emerge to be somewhere in the middle. What we do know for sure is that he has ruined his life, age 17, and given I've asked you lot to think about what went so wrong in her world that Shemima Begin made the decision she did, I'm going to have to ask the same of you here. All of this inevitably means that race continues to be the issue of the election, which as an outsider, I'm going to say I don't entirely think is a good thing. If, as we are constantly told, the aftermath of school shootings isn't the time to talk about the right to bear arms, maybe teenage boys wandering the streets with guns is. I don't know. Mickey's shaking no, her why
0: head. Why would you? Why, why bring <laughs> it up, Hannah? It's not. Well, we're not comfortable with it. Well, exactly that.
1: So why isn't gun control high on the agenda? Well, here's my theory. First up, gun ownership has shot up in America this year. And while there doesn't seem to be a reliable way of knowing exactly how many guns are bought and sold, we do have an idea. So, discounting illegal gun sales and private gun sales, which don't require a background check, we do know in March alone, 2.4 million background checks were conducted for gun sales, a rise of 80% on the year before. And while it's true that all these checks may not have resulted in the purchase of a gun... Some may have resulted in the purchase of more than one. So it's a pretty good gauge of where the country is. And while nobody seems to be keeping a record of what demographics are buying guns, retailers are reporting anecdotally that many of the purchases are being made by first-time gun owners.
0: Do they think they can shoot the virus? Open question. Okay, answers on a postcard.
1: So that's the spike caused by the COVID panic, inexplicable though it may be. <laughs> yeah. Has there been a further one due to the ongoing protests? Well, I can't seem to find any stats on that. It may be too early to know. But if I was to speculate, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems logical that if people think they can shoot a, a virus... They're exactly the sort of people that would believe that a gun was of use in a riot, I'm guessing. so fucking
0: terrifying.
1: But if you combine this with the fact that lockdown means that there hasn't been a major mass shooting incident in the last six months in America, or certainly not one that's made a dent in the news cycle, I'm guessing America feels very differently about guns now than it did this time last year. Meaning that I'm guessing gun control is off the agenda for Trump v. Biden, just
0: when they need it the most i feel like they've needed it the most so many times like you mentioned earlier about like school shootings and you know if it isn't a 17 year old wandering the streets with a gun when is the right time to talk so i have a question for you uh a wise one of american politics do a lot of democrats agree with the second amendment as well or is it seen as more of a republican stronghold
1: I don't know that you could directly say that the politics of someone who likes guns is naturally Republican, but you could say that since Republicans are more pro gun, that if your overriding philosophy is your right to own a gun, you're more likely to vote Republican than you are Democrat.
0: Right. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. Hannah, would you like some good news? Is, is it that my gun has arrived in the post? Your six guns have arrived in the post. I'm going to go outside and shoot an American football. Um, (laughs) It's just (laughs) taking up too much space. Um, (laughs) Well, I am once again donning my Jenny off the blocks hat to bring you a whoop whoop from the world of women's sport. It is now official that this time next year, the awesome Lionesses get to say to our to Phil Neville and welcome new head coach, Serena Wiegman, who takes control of the squad from September, 2021. And yes, I'm assuming there'll be a 2021 because hope is all we've got. Anyway, who is she and what does she know about football? You might be thinking. Wiegman is currently the Netherlands manager and led the Dutch to the Euro 2017 title and the 2019 World Cup final. So, you know, she's got excellent previous. Unlike Neville, who's hardly covered himself in glory in the 30 odd months he's been in the job. Unless the goal for now was to recreate the drama and very specific English heartbreak of the men's team. Yeah, yeah, maybe Neville will redeem his lukewarm performance so far in next year's Olympics as some sort of told-you-so swan song, and we wouldn't be mad about that at all. But in the meantime, we are mighty chuffed that a well-qualified woman will be the next coach helping the Lionesses to roar on the world stage.
1: That is a good story. And also, there was something that you did unintentionally in that, and I feel like if I got to enjoy it, then... Listeners should do. When you said, unlike Neville, you did like a little Eric Morgan thing with your glasses. <laughs> <his. laughs> did it again.
0: <laughs> uh, more news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the Week. It's that time of the week where sexism is underground, overground, wombling free. Although, (laughs) in fact, this sexism of the week, which comes courtesy of Caroline Criado Perez's excellent weekly newsletter, which you should all sign up for, does have a silver lining. But, you know, let's start with the cloud because it is a mighty beast, my friends. A survey by Transport for London found that 90% of all incidents of sexual harassment go unreported. And obviously that fits in with what we already know about crimes of sexual violence and reporting stats. But public transport systems offer a particular appeal for certain sex offenders because they're a transitory and target-rich environment. Yeah, sorry, we will get to the silver lining soon, I promise. But first, the most commonly experienced types of unwanted sexual behaviour on public transport groping or touching, staring, sexual comments and body rubbing or frottering, which is when a man with an erection rubs up against you and goes, wasn't my fault, train was packed. Transport for London, note that the overwhelming majority of these offences take place during the rush hour peaks. Silver lining, here we are. Queue Visible, a new platform created by two very fed up female best friends to, and I quote, Make reporting harassment on the tube as easy as reading the news or checking your social media. To be blunt, they add, we are sick and tired of the burden being on women to go out of their way to avoid harassment. Hell and yes. So they've created an incredibly easy to use anonymous system, which you can see for yourself at visibleplatform.org. You can report something that's happened to you or that you've witnessed. Incidents that are big, small, present or past. The more data Visible can collect, the more able they'll be to make change. Data, particularly sex disaggregated data, is so important, and you can see why CCP was into this. Although women are at the heart of Visible, anyone and everyone can report. The report feature has options to include your gender, sexuality and race, so that Visible can identify trends and acknowledge the intersections of those more likely to experience harassment. Here's the URL again. Visibleplatform.org. That is good. Hmm. Hey, do you remember just before when we went to
1: see Stella Creasy at the Houses of Parliament at the start of March... And we were having a conversation and I said I didn't understand why British Transport had never had a campaign that said you should stand a fair distance from women. And we were like, yeah, we should maybe do a campaign about that. And within a month, you weren't allowed within a fucking foot of people. (laughs) Is
0: that what you were thinking, Hannah? Is this what you (laughs) had in mind?
1: (laughs) Uh, Did I do that with the power of my mind? Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by our favourite cinema goer, Yosra Osman. Hello, Yosra.
2: Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm
1: all right. We were having a conversation the other day, you and Mickey and I, off mic. And it was so interesting, we thought, why not do it on mic? Obviously, questions of things like blackface, uh, they're not new, but they are back into the public domain because of what's going on in America at the moment. And that's a good thing.
2: Yes, definitely.
1: We're picking our favourite film for flicking, which everyone should listen to, if they don't already. And I was going to choose Trading Places, which... I don't know if you've seen. I actually haven't. Okay. I have not. I absolutely love, I mean, it's the 80s, Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd. It's very funny. But it has a really egregious case of blackface. And it means that I don't feel in good conscience that I could recommend that anybody watch it. Even though at heart, the central theme of Trading Places is it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is the opportunities that you're given and that we can all be great, Yeah, you know. The essential theme is actually quite progressive, but... Bang in the middle of it. Blackface. And I don't know how to feel about it. I don't know if I can recommend it. And when we were talking about it, you said that you feel certain ways about films. I just want to say as a disclaimer, you don't speak for all people of colour any more than I speak for I... all white people. So um, <laughs> this is all obviously opinion. But to t- tell me what you make of, of instances of, of let's start with blackface.
2: Well, I think it's a moral dilemma we all face when we talk about films that we... Loved particularly films from our childhood or when we were younger, and we rewatch them, and then we discover things that we are quite shocked by, and we 're not sure how to feel about it. Should we like the film anymore or sh- should we not and it 's something that I faced quite a lot i talking about picking favorite films for flicking. It's, it's something that I had to think about quite regularly, thinking about what my next favourite film is going to be. So I'm a big fan of, to, to give you an example similar to, to Trading Places, so I'm a massive fan of musicals. And one of my f- absolute favourite musicals growing up as a teenager was West Side Story, because everybody at my school loved West Side Story. We even did it as our school musical one year, and I just loved it. And then I rewatched it, must have been a couple of months ago, and all the horrors of that film <laughs> suddenly started appearing to me. It's very simplistic view of race relations, the fact that all the characters who are playing Puerto Ricans are in brown face. Yeah. Even Rita Marino, who is Puerto Rican, and probably one of the few Puerto Ricans to actually play a Puerto Rican, had to wear brown face for the film yes she did i don't think a lot of people know that i only found out when i was doing some reading about it after i'd seen it but yeah she had to wear brown face as well and it's just one of those things that i just thought oh my goodness i used to love this film can i love this film anymore it was really personal battle that i went through and there's there's actually you know quite a bit more wrong with the film Mm. that we could go into but when I was watching it, I was wondering, should I feel guilty for still liking what I like about it? In essence, the big choreographed sequences, the colours, the costumes, the music. The music is spectacular. Really quite a horrible moment for me. And it's a dilemma that I think a lot of people are face now watching all sorts of films. You know, Disney, I'm the biggest fan of Disney. But there is some awful, there's awful cultural representation in a lot of Disney films, even up to films like Aladdin. which are just golden in the Disney universe. Everybody loves, well, most people love Aladdin. So it's a really hard thing to think about. And with West Side Story, I think what's really good is being able to have discussions like this one today, to think about the the things in the film that are problematic. And I know problematic in itself has become a bit of a problematic word. Uh, (laughs) But to have these conversations and, and experience the film in a different way there's something about having watched West Side Story again with new thoughts and new feelings and understanding what was wrong with it that I think was quite educational for me yeah and sort of watching it as perhaps more of a historical document a product of its time but not excusing all the awful stuff that was in it is quite important I think nowadays and we should we shouldn't just cancel everything you know cancel culture is massive I don't think we should just be cancelling everything we should be looking at film as an art and accepting that there are problems with it so that's the sort of train of thought that I go through now.
1: On the musical front as a child I wasn't really into musicals that much but I was very much into Seven Brides for Seven Brothers which is hilariously sexist when you watch it as a grown-up I mean basically men kidnap women and force them to live with them And those women respond by falling in love with them. I mean, it's preposterous. Mm. It's ridiculous. It's really offensive. But yet when they all build a house while dancing at the same time, I mean, just amazing. I love it. So it's really difficult. But that kind of keys me into a point of I love Westerns. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Rich Hall did a really good documentary for the BBC about five years ago about the representation of First Nation or Native American people. A lot of that was just white people painted at the start or Mexicans painted. Language is interesting because a lot of them were just told to speak nonsense. Just just speak yeah. nonsense because it do- it doesn't matter. I don't think it was until Dances with Wolves that people actually considered that using their own language. Even so, Dances with Wolves pushed to something that is very very progressive still works on a white savior narrative in which he manages yeah. to be a, a better member of the Lakota Sioux than the actual Lakota Sioux but yes I mean for me Western's incredibly problematic and actually even if you yeah. step away from race and I'm a big fan of Sam Peckinpah but some of that shit is really really sex further than sexist misogynist and I don't know where to put my feelings for it a lot it, of the time.
2: I think one of the things that i find interesting is at the time these films were made issues like sexism misogyny racism cultural depictions all of that there were people at the time that criticized it and when we think about cultural discourse that there were those people that said this is wrong the difference was that they were overpowered by the kind of white conservative voice Mm. so now we can watch these films back but that white conservative voice doesn't have to be overpowering anymore you know there's loads of articles on this there's loads of discussions about this we can now all as a society hopefully watch these films and say that was wrong gone with the wind so much wrong with that film but actually the first time I watched it was only like last year it's actually a really good film even with all the problems in it
1: I sometimes wonder with gone with the wind isn't a bad example of this if we don't credit the watcher with enough intelligence to know that this is A, Hollywood, and B, the 1930s, yeah, I would hope that anyone coming to this film in the 21st century would realise this isn't an accurate representation of what the Civil yeah. War was like.
2: And Absolutely. I
1: know HBO have done a thing now where they originally took it off their streaming services, they put it back on their streaming services, but with a prologue, I suppose, by a historian. And although I think that certainly gets around a certain problem with it I don't know anyone who actually believes that that's what happened Mm. that slaves were essentially happy with their situation I can't believe anyone believes that but I suppose maybe some people do some people are idiots unfortunately
2: (laughs) (laughs) well basically I guess there is always that danger that some people and particularly sorry keep going back to Disney but because young children watch it you don't want young children to see images of blackface or horrible cultural stereotypes and think that's okay. Another thing people talk about having disclaimers before films, a little bit like what you said with Gone with the Wind. Mm. Another example I'm thinking of is, is Tom and Jerry. I don't know if you watched Tom and Jerry when you were a kid. but the, I did, yeah. There's some quite problematic depictions of a black female character in Tom and Jerry, and it came into question later on, I think the 90s, can't remember. And then Cartoon Network decided that because of this, before every episode that they screen of Tom and Jerry, they're going to put a little message to say, you know, these are outdated depictions. I can't remember the wording they use, but for a lot of people that was a really really big deal and so now the question is should we be doing that with all of these films but then you're looking at the whole art form in terms of what do we do with books these days yeah what do we do with music you know I'm I'm a massive lover of hip-hop there are some songs in hip-hop that have really horrible homophobic slurs sexist terminology what do we do about that so the question actually you know we're talking about film because I love film but it goes a lot broader than that is how do we look at art and, and judge that and should we be making disclaimers for everything is that unrealistic
1: again we talked about this off mic i'm a big fan of thomas Wolfe's look homeward angel it's a really great book it was about five years ago removed from the recommended reading list for children in america I mean, I don't think it's ever been on the reading list here, but it, it was considered for a very long time part of the canon in American literature, the great American novel, riddled with racist language. Not just anti-black, but also anti-Semitic. Now, the argument for keeping it outside from the fact that it is an excellent work of fiction, he was showing people how they actually spoke at the time. And like you say, as an essence of historical document, that serves some purpose. To say, yeah. this is how people used to talk. I mean, I, I've yeah. had this argument before. Some people have said to me they wouldn't watch Mad Men because it was sexist. And I'm like, it's not sexist. Mad Men mm. loves its female characters, absolutely loves mm. them, gives them loads mm. of screen time, gives them agency. But what it does is it represents a time in which the world was exceptionally sexist. Mm. It doesn't mean that the intention of the programme is sexist. It means it reflects sexism that actually exists so it becomes quite complicated if you're going to be offended by something and I'm never going to tell someone not to be offended by something because like I say no that's the difference here I am being white and straight and but I don't know if it's my place to be offended on other people's behalf because there may be other people that say yeah I'm Jewish but I'm quite happy that that that's a representation of how life was for Jews 50 or 60 years ago
2: I think it's an individual thing like you say it's it's about how we all see things but also it has to be done on a case-by-case basis so I just talked about for example hip-hop how I'll still listen to a lot of, of songs that I probably won't wash with a lot of other people but I'll never listen to R. Kelly again yeah you can't just have a blanket statement for everything that that comes out especially with film so it is that makes it even more difficult yeah. i think to know what to do when you're talking about favorite films and thinking is this okay but i think what's really good about people like us and having these conversations and talking about the films that, that we love is that we can recognize what's wrong with that and we can say this scene for example this use of blackface was terrible and it, it shouldn't have been there but I'm still okay with accepting the positive things about this film. It's finding that that way of sort of accepting it, to go from the sublime to the ridiculous. Bring It On is a film that I... Absolutely adored again. Growing up as a teenager, I I still know all the words to the first chant that they do, the first scene, and I'll still recite it at parties. Whenever I've had a couple of drinks, I'm like, "I'm sexy, I'm cute, I'm popular to boot," and I keep going and going and going until the very, very end. However, there is homophobia throughout that film, and there's a really uncomfortable scene where one of the male cheerleaders picks up a female cheerleader and puts his fingers in her underwear, and it's played as a joke. Joke. Mm. and this was 2001 it's not that old not that it's acceptable at any time but it's played as a joke watching that again about two years ago something like that I thought can I really like this film but then I remember the things I loved about it as a it- kid and the fact that you know although the race relations again are quite simplistic seeing people like gabrielle union on the big screen a black woman with her team of all black cheerleaders and they are really good they're really strong cheerleaders i can take that as a positive and say there were some really cool things about that film against all the fuckery basically so it's probably not the best example i could have come up with for this no podcast. no it's it is. It's, it's a great
1: example go back briefly to R Kelly after me too a lot of this conversation came up a lot of this what am I supposed to do with Kevin Spacey would be a great example of this yeah. now I'd already sort of dealt with that a couple of years before with what am I going to do with my feelings about Clint Eastwood who had been going on a, a sort of a nosedive of Republican you know maybe it's age maybe he just always felt like that and he hid it less I don't know mm. but I was like, oh, God, just stop saying stuff. Just stop saying stuff, Lynn Eastwood, because you're making me not want to watch Unforgiven.
2: Genuinely, when I think about things like that, I really don't know what the right answer is. I face these battles all the time. Well, I
1: don't think there is a right answer, Yosra, but I think the problem is that some people think there is. And therefore, when you... That's very true. When you enter a debate on this, especially if you try to enter a debate on something like, say, Twitter, which I would advise nobody does, because Mm. you will find someone... Who gets incredibly angry with you that you haven't burned all of your copies of Disney films, or whatever it is that 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 yeah. they are upset about?
2: Yeah twitter's a cesspool for these kinds of conversations i'm very careful about what i post on twitter and and you're right people seem to think that they can tell you what you're supposed to what you're supposed to think and like and they're just certain that they're right in in these spheres whereas i think actually it's way more complicated than that you know harvey weinstein's a great example absolute utter awful garbage of a person but so many films that he produced or his company produced yeah. are excellent, excellent films. Can we just stop watching them? I personally can't. And that, that's really, really difficult. So it gets really, really complex, you know. But I'll, for some reason, I'll never watch a Woody Allen film. But I think that actually comes down to my own personal taste and the fact that I don't really like Woody Allen. Oh, it's it's a lot
1: easier. It was a lot easier for me to say, I think, that Quentin Tarantino is a misogynist and I'm not yeah. going to watch any more of his films given that I don't like his films particularly. Yeah. I got to be quite sanctimonious on that. yeah. Know. As well, what worries people is this idea that they're going to become joyless. And and again, we talked about this the other day. Because I was a big fan of Rocky all my Mm. life. My dad was a big fan of Rocky. We watched it a lot when we were growing up. In fact, my dad was a big fan of boxing. And I was when I was younger. I have more complicated feelings about boxing now. I was watching it with a friend of mine. And it's absolutely his favourite film. And this was probably about five or six years ago. Probably the 20th or 30th time I'd seen Rocky. And suddenly I felt the scales had fallen from my eyes and suddenly I thought Rocky really harasses really harasses Adrienne into a relationship and Adrienne is quite a fragile vulnerable person yeah and there's a scene where they're ice skating and I found it unwatchable and I said oh my god I can't believe he's just harassing her and my friend was like, oh my God, I will never unsee that now. And he remains mm. angry with me that I have ruined Rocky for him. Or certainly ruined that part of Rocky for him. And so I think people have a fear that they're going to be seen as this joyless person who's just going to sit and go, can't watch that because of that. You can't watch that because yeah. of that.
2: Yeah. I've also been that person twice, very recently, probably more times. I think I was watching Blade Runner. Oh, you know what, I've only seen it twice, so I never remember the characters' names. But there's a bit where the main character forces a woman to kiss him. And I was like, all right, that's not right. And my friend sitting next to me just went, shut up. It's not about that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Moulin Rouge, you know, yeah. is also one of my favourite films. And, it, you know, this is perhaps not the, the strongest example, but there's a, the, the whole musical sequence towards the end when they're performing the the play. You could technically see that as cultural appropriation because they're trying to do a Bollywood style play, but it's very stereotypically done. And again, I was sat with two of my best friends who loved Moulin Rouge to death. And I said, oh, Don't you think that's a, bit, that's a bit problematic there? And again, they both just shut me down straight away, saying, Why do you have to bring this up when we are enjoying our favourite film? Yeah. Why? Because <laughs> I guess you don't want to be that person. But I, sometimes I just can't help but say it because yeah. I'm thinking it. I can't help it. But you're not being joyless. I still love Moulin Rouge. I'm still going to watch it. I'm still going to scream out come what may at the end of the film. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) you know what? It's just one of those things. And also, I guess there's the point that if you do start looking for the, the problematic parts of any film, then. You're going to find a lot of films that you loved that are problematic in some way. Loads of films, especially, you know, me loving my golden age musicals. There's a lot wrong with those. I think a lot of times you worry that every film you watch now, you're just going to sit and be like, that was wrong. That was wrong. It ruined the film. Which is why I really try now to think about what I love about those films, especially when they're nostalgic to me, going back and thinking about why as a kid, I absolutely adored watching Disney films, for example. It's just getting that balance. Yeah. I've
1: probably had a longer relationship with trading places than I've had with most people who are currently in my life. Mm. My devotion to it goes back way longer than my devotion to a lot of my political ideas, a lot of people who opinions I respect. In many ways, it's a bit like telling someone that they should leave a job they've been in for ages or they should leave a man. I think people have to come to this decision On their own I don't think you can force people into seeing stuff if they don't or being bothered by stuff because if they've managed to happily compartmentalize
2: it's a really hard one I think the, the most that you can do especially when it comes to other people is as long as there's that awareness and there's that kind of notice that these things aren't okay and there was no excuse for them then there's no excuse for them now i'd rather that we were without all of these things and all the films that we've talked about uh, then it would be perfect films if we took away all those horrible things that we we've suddenly noticed are really problematic then it would be ideal but we can't take those bits away you know there's nothing that we can do about the things that we now see as quite troubling i just think as long as we can ex- see what's there and see that it's wrong we can still value the other things in the film that make it a great film and that's that's my that's my story and I'm sticking to it
1: (laughs) I like it well on that note the next edition of flicking we are going to be watching one of Mickey's choices Ghostbusters which is sexist as hell in so many places so (laughs) we can continue part of this conversation there thank you so much for joining us Joshua it's been well interesting
2: thank you
0: Hello, I am joined on the phone by author Hannah Begby. Hannah, hello. Hello, hi, it's nice to speak to you. Nice to speak to you again. So before we talk about your second book, Blurred Lines, you chatted to us a couple of years ago about your debut book, Mother, in which the central character has a daughter with cystic fibrosis. Your little boy has cystic fibrosis, and I wondered how have
3: you all been during the pandemic? Well, it's an interesting kind of combination of emotions, because on the one hand, we had spent the last seven years of his life being incredibly careful about infection Mm -hmm. and using lots of hand sanitizers and sometimes having to wear face masks. And so we were kind of really accustomed to what people were starting to view as the beginning of a new normal. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, because this was a novel virus, primarily at that point affecting the lungs, so of course, everybody now, you know, now understands it's a kind of multi-organ thing we were very anxious about it and of course people with cystic fibrosis were on the shielding list mm. so a week prior to lockdown we just took masses into our own hands and went into lockdown and went into shielding and took all the kind of necessary precautions and and all the rest of it and kind of got on with it like you do and like everybody did and then actually about three months into lockdown we had this amazing life-changing news That the NHS had done a deal with Vertex Pharmaceuticals which is the huge American pharmaceutical company I think we discussed the last time we chatted a couple of years ago yeah the NHS had done a deal for this medication called Trikafta which is a life-changing transformative uh, medicine for cystic fibrosis and it was just the best day of our lives it was everything that we had been waiting for he will we hope be on that medication sometime by the end of the year or beginning of next year and it's kind of wonderful it's it's not a full cure but it's as close as and will mean that the treatment protocol that we follow every day will probably be far less and he'll be taking less pills and will he'll be able to kind of do some of the things that he doesn't get to do like jump in muddy bubbles that's incredible news it was really good and i think around that time also there was just a kind of split spirit sense that we'd just get on with it really and, and try and keep him and the rest of the family as safe as possible but that news kind of really lifted that anxiety about the pandemic as well so it, was, it was, has been brilliant so you know since I last spoke to you two years ago the landscape has just completely changed for treatment in cystic fibrosis and it's
0: it's brilliant oh it's so nice to have a bit of positive news amid the weirdness capital mm. t capital w and another bit of positive news. Okay, difficult second book. Yeah, I think you've
3: nailed it, mate. Well done. Tell us Thanks very so much. Tell us about Blurred Lines. So Blurred Lines is set in the film industry. It's about a young film producer who walks in on her film executive boss in a very compromising position with a woman who isn't his wife. She doesn't quite know what she saw, but then when that woman accuses her boss of rape, she is very conflicted about how to deal with that situation. And the story is about some of the elements of her past and some of the elements of her present that go towards making the decision that she finally makes. Mm-hmm. This was inspired by two things. First of all, when all of the Me Too stuff started coming out, there was a lot of commentary and a lot of people saying, well, I just don't understand why nobody called out Harvey Weinstein at the time. Just people kind of going, God, if I'd been in that situation and I knew that he was on the prowl and doing what he was doing, then I would have said something. And it really it really made me think, well, what is it that stops somebody from stepping forward when they witness something that they may or may not know to be a criminal act? So that really stuck in my head. And the second was coming across an article about Rose McGowan's old manager, who was implicated in some of the defense, I think, for Harvey Weinstein. Rose McGowan felt very strongly that her manager hadn't stood up for her in the early days when she had gone to her and said, this man is sexually assaulting me. As an ex-agent myself, it really, again, made me think, if I had been in that situation as an agent and a client had come to me and said, somebody had uh, uh, sexually assaulted me I like to think that I would have gone ahead and reported it or gone through the correct channels to try and uh, make sure that that person was called out so it really rooted me in that kind of what would you do type scenario which is which for I think for an author is is real catnip and It kind of gave me enough fertilizer for this character to start to build somebody who was dimensional and nuanced and had stuff in her background that may make it difficult for her to step forward and be a public face of a rape trial. Yeah. So it was really inspired by the gray areas of that situation not necessarily being an easy one because of course many rape trials are predicated on where's the evidence and what exactly did you see so it really starts to kind of i hope it starts to kind of excavate some of those really tricky issues
0: yeah you mentioned harvey weinstein obviously i mean now he's a convicted rapist but there was a huge chance Mm -hmm. it wasn't going to play out that way and what i found Mm. particularly interesting and which blurred lines reminded me of was the way he shielded himself with women with women he'd worked with, which is exactly what Matthew does in the book with Becky. There's there's this huge Mm. burden on women's shoulders to sort out this mess made by men raping other women.
3: I think that's all about power. So Becky in that situation is in a position of almost no power. So she has no real power in her job. She is completely dependent upon him for support and leverage within her industry. And therefore, anything I think that she as a character saw him do is completely skewed by that sense that she owes him something for helping her. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know that is quite commonplace. There is a real kind of imbalance between a woman of, I don't know, 26, in an industry and a man of 55 who has much more experience and much more power and many more resources to try and cloak what he wants to do. In this particular story, that was about power and that was about her thinking, is it my responsibility? And it it wasn't as black and white as that for her at all because a huge part of the story is about what has happened to her in the past and how that completely speared every judgment almost that she makes in the present
0: yeah exactly that becky is in a huge emotional as well as moral pickle what she's seen has been very triggering for her and actually unresolved trauma looms
3: really large in this story the whole thing is driven by this interest in unresolved trauma and how people, I I think most people have something that's happened to them in the past that really informs how they respond in the present. And that's a source of real fascination to me. And so while I have been, you know, have been lucky enough not to be the victim of sexual harassment, have undergone other traumas. And the past kind of couple of years has been a real exploration of how I think when you don't resolve some of those things, or you don't get a grip on it, it can undermine your own sense of well-being and can undermine your sense of happiness and therefore the decisions that you make trauma and unresolved trauma feels like a a really fragile part of the loop of human existence that if you can kind of grab onto it and find a way of framing some of that stuff so that it kind of morphs from being trauma and from being, you know, a kind of destructive part of your life to being a constructive part of your life so that you can view it and then move on. I find a really interesting conundrum and it's a very difficult thing, I think, to do and a very challenging thing for human beings to reframe their trauma.
0: Yeah, I think you always carry it with you. It's, it's learning to live alongside it because you can't ever erase it. Exactly. And that's really yeah. tricky. It's, I think it's a lifelong project. We're always working on it. But you know, yeah, you uh, you kind of made me feel sorry for a rapist, Hannah, and we're staying in a no-spoiler zone, Gosh. so all I'm going to say <laughs> is that some of those lines are very blurry indeed, and as you've just been yeah. saying, it made me think about a couple of incidents that have happened to me in my past that I've absolutely reframed to... I don't know, make myself feel better doesn't feel like the right phrase, but it's it's the one I've got. But to sort of make myself feel better about them and so that I can live alongside them or just even not think about them. And I think most of us have blurry recollections of incidents that involved blurred lines, right?
3: Yeah, and I think that's really interesting that you say it because actually what what really kind of underpins this issue of trauma and how we interpret things is how human beings choose their stories and and really this book and like my recent book is i think about how we adopt a story and we tell ourselves a story in order to be able to survive i think to a certain extent you have to tell yourself okay this is what happened and how it happened and this is why I am okay in this moment and this is why i'm going to do what i'm going to do and it's maybe not as rational as that i think The really interesting thing about that stuff is how the subconscious can completely undermine you, even when you've told yourself, no, this is the story. This is what happened to me. And then your subconscious will pull you under. Mm -hmm. The conflict between those two things makes a really good story, I think. And I think that's what Blurred Lines is about. But we, I think we all do it, don't we? We all kind of, it's kind of some of the source of anxiety as well. We weave stories about almost everything that we do from a day to day basis, um, Moment to moment, you know, oh god, that person ignored me on the street. It's probably because I'm a complete nightmare to to speak to at the school gay. <laughs> or you know, you yeah, know, yeah, totally. that person would have been thinking about their like laundry.
0: Yeah, we put ourselves in the center of our story, I guess, because we are the center of our mm. story, but it doesn't mean that everyone else is bit players and all their reactions are reactions to you. And sometimes, if you're mm. dealing with something else, it can be quite hard to forget that and to remind yourself that actually if you think that their Mm -hmm. mood is because of you that's probably quite a narcissistic way of approaching it (laughs) and you should maybe just they're just having a shit day or whatever (laughs) yeah
3: absolutely
0: you mentioned obviously when you're an agent you'd like to hope that if someone had come to you in the way that rose mcgowan had gone to her manager you you would do something about it and i think that most of us would hope we would react in a good moral way that you know, obviously, what Becky Becky really really wants to believe, Matthew. She wants to believe him because she yeah. thinks he's a good person. He told her he's a good person, and she also wants to believe him because that makes her life a lot easier. And I think it's it's yeah, it's a very it's, it's a no man's land that no one really wants to be in, right?
3: That's right, and and I think you know again with this comes hope as well that actually, a human beings I think fundamentally want to believe that that people. Don't behave badly, and pe- that people are fundamentally good, and that they go about their everyday lives being good people. We all hope that of each other, don't we? I mean, I don't know. I do. I always massively. <laughs> I'm just probably. I'm probably really childish, and I'm always really surprised when I hear that. That like, I don't know. I d- I don't know. I just kind of just really hope that everyone. And that's not to say that I do either. I just, there's just a fundamental hope that we're all kind of nice to each other. But, of course, that's just not the case, is it? You know, that's just not the case. Bad shit happens and people are nasty to each other sometimes. That can sometimes come from the corners that you least expect it. And, yeah, I think Becky really did, as Matthew, desperately hope that he was a good person. He was nice to her and he helped her. And I think on that evidence, going back to what you were saying earlier, I think, you know, you, you can only ever gather the facts and the evidence as a human being and then marry that with your instinct about a person and then go, Okay, well, maybe that thing was kind of all right. And then and then, you know, of course of course that's not always the case. It's a fascinating,
0: like horrible but fascinating subject and you handle it really, really well in blurred lines. I think Becky is the I mean she's a very sympathetic character but she also wears her flaws on her sleeve and I think that's really important Mm. she's no angel herself I I think that makes it even Mm. more interesting so thank you so much for writing it Blurred Lines is published by HarperCollins and is out now where
3: can people chat to you on social media please Hannah they can chat to me on uh, Twitter at Hannah Begby or Instagram at Hannah Begby or Facebook and website com.
0: Amazing. Thank you so, so much
3: for chatting to me. Thank you, Mickey. Thank you very much.
0: Welcome to Rated or Dated. It was very hard not to say Dunleavy does that, but as Dunleavy did explain at the top... We've had a bit of a change around.
1: Rated or dated, we take a film that is enjoying a major anniversary. I don't know if enjoying is the right word. Having a major anniversary. And we take a look at it again to ask, A, whether or not we like it. In this case, it will be whether we like it because it's a film neither of us had seen before. That is true. Or whether we still like it. And then secondly, whether or not it has aged Particularly well. Again, in this case, that will not be specific to Mel Gibson, but that will be in the wider chat about Braveheart. So, yes, Braveheart released this actual week. I don't think we're going to be able to manage to pull this off all the time, that it'll be the actual week, but released this actual very week in the UK, at least in 1995, making it 25. Directed by and starring Mel Gibson as William Wallace and telling the story of his life and him leading the Scots against Edward I, Longshanks, as he was better known, took $210.4 million worldwide. Fucking hell! Won five Oscars, Best Director and Best Film. Still none of this was enough to make you and me watch it. <laughs> um, the expression, you can take our lives but you can never take our freedom is scattered liberally throughout all pop culture now. Along with The Bearing of asses, my particular favourite is the one where Mel Gibson is in The Simpsons and they're being chased down and Homer says, I've got a plan. And he turns around and he pulls his pants down and Mel Gibson says, what's that going to do? And he said, it's not my plan, it was your plan. Makes me laugh almost as much as the first time I ever went to Stirling. It was during the time that they had that statue that somebody had built at the Wallace Memorial, which basically just looked exactly like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. and that is no longer there after it was branded a lump of crap by locals. That seems pretty mild from Scottish people,
0: to be honest with you, if they don't like something.
1: At the time, it was widely ridiculed for its wild historical inaccuracy. There's literally no point going into what's wrong with it. There's more chance going into what's right with it is in that there was a man called William Wallace and he did actually live in Scotland. I've found a quote here from a historian that I think basically sums this up. The events aren't accurate, the dates aren't accurate, the characters aren't accurate, the names aren't accurate, the clothes aren't accurate, just about nothing is accurate. I've made a couple of notes of some things we can discuss. Scotland the beautiful, familiar faces, Mel Gibson's accent, battle scenes, Mel Gibson's forehead, Too fucking long, which encompasses both the length of this film and Mel Gibson's hair. (laughs) Soft focus, missionary position. And jaunty music murder rampage, (laughs) which really encapsulates my thoughts. We should probably start with... Did we like it?
0: I think before, before we get into this, I just have to point out Beautiful Scotland. Did you know it was mostly filmed in Ireland? I didn't know. So Scotland is indeed beautiful. You will get no arguments from me on that one. Uh, but they chose not to film it there and instead filmed, I think, 80% of it in Ireland, which is also yeah. beautiful. Yeah, very much. But it is not Scotland. Ireland
1: or Scotland are the beauty bits of the British Isles, undoubtedly. Don't at me.
0: Wales is lovely as well. Snowdonia is gorgeous.
1: Yes. So whether we liked it. Now, let's start with
0: you because I've been chatting for a bit. Did you like it, Mick? Do you know what? I could totally see why it was a really entertaining film. I could absolutely understand why people liked it. And even though it was three hours long, it is very, very watchable. But And I don't know if this is just me, and I don't mean that in that fucking annoying Twitter way of, is it just me, or does tea taste like tea? Is it just me, or are parents well annoying? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Is it just me, or do I get older every year? Uh, That kind of thing. I mean it in a, I used to really enjoy kind of, I suppose, quite violent stuff, but I just found the violence, it's so relentless, it's so gory. There's so many horses go down on spears. I just, I think in a world where we are kicking the shit out of each other pretty much constantly, I don't need to watch it on a telly anymore. So I found it a little bit exhausting from that way. It's got some quite funny bits. I did some giggling. I uh, enjoyed Mel Gibson's performance as OTT as it is. I automatically assumed that I wasn't going to like it. And
1: then I thought, why did I assume that? Because the the kind of genre that it falls into also includes Gladiator, which for all its faults, I actually enjoy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last of the Mohicans, which I absolutely fucking love. Dances with Wolves, which I absolutely fucking love. So I thought it's a lot of that's going to be Mel Gibson. It's going to be like, oh my God, Mel Gibson, I just can't watch him. But, and we'll get onto that in the dated section... But what I will say is that I think there are loads better reasons not to think it's good than Mel Gibson. Uh, for example, the dialogue, which just absolutely fucking blows. It is so bad, the dialogue in this. There are so many good actors in this. Oh, so yeah. So many brilliant actors that are Brendan hidden roles. tiny roles. I actually, I actually wrote a little list here, and I would say that what it means essentially is that, you know, Mel Gibson is maybe the 20th best actor in this film. Um uh, Peter Mullen, Alan Armstrong, Brendan Cleese and Brian Cox, Gerald McSorley, Ian Bannon, hidden under all that leper makeup. I actually think the best thing in it is David O'Hara, because I think, think this film is so stupid that actually having a self-aware Irish madman...
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, he's great in it.
1: Like, is, it fits in, it's believable in it, and it's fun, because I actually think it needs fun, this film. But I think the battle scenes are really good. I think they well, stand Well, the battle up. scenes
0: have been really lauded. Yeah, I just, I only need one battle scene, I think. And obviously, right. it's a fight for independence, so there were a lot of them. The battle at Stirling, I mean, they forgot the bridge bit, which yeah. is pretty important. But that aside, it is it's so brilliantly choreographed to say that obviously Gibson was the director he's it it doesn't get confusing even though obviously they're not in like matching uniforms and stuff there is this melee but you you follow it all the way through so I thought they were incredibly well done I just maybe didn't want to watch people slice that when he slices that guy's leg right off I was like that is pure Monty Python but also must happen on the battlefield It's so well done. The battles are so well done. And I actually think Mel Gibson's quite endearing in this, obviously, as a human. (laughs) The CGI. I mean, it's early days of CGI
1: in this. The only time that it's I think that they dabble in it and it doesn't really work is when he's surveying the scene at Stirling. And it's got some sort of like, you know, thing added on at the back, which almost looks like tea in the park and nobody's moving <laughs> it did the... remind
0: me of B 97 a lot yeah, of this actually. nobody's
1: moving in the back so i think obviously it's easier for things to age well before all of this technology technology yeah, yeah. Um,
0: but also the extras he used were mostly army reservists so they knew exactly what they were doing as yeah.
1: well
0: the depiction like i say let's not
1: talk about history because obviously the depiction of it is ridiculous. But what I will say is that whether I liked it as a performance or not, Patrick McGowan as Edward the First, that performance, having never seen it before, but having seen The Hunger Games, I think that what Donald Sutherland is doing in The Hunger Games relies really heavily on what Patrick McGowan did in this. Interesting. So I think there is some sort of That's obviously a performance that's aged well, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think Game of Thrones has clearly maybe looked to this as well, given that the battle scenes are still up there as some of the best ever put on film. It reminded me a lot of Game of Thrones, which obviously came much later. Yeah, and also the music
1: was quite Lord of the Rings.
0: Was it? It was, I agree with you, but also it just sounded constantly like the start of world and union and it really confused me every Uh, time it kicked up (laughs) yeah
1: so yes I would say as the question of whether I liked it or not the answer would probably be no I can't imagine I'd ever watch it again and not just because of the horses
0: but the horses I did find something interesting out because I was really shocked and I don't know what it says about me as a human being that it shocks me much more when there's violence towards animals than there it's people, and you know, clearly not as desensitised to that. So I had a little look, and apparently Animal Welfare did investigate Mel Gibson for this film, and it turns out that according to IMDb, the horses looked lifelike, but they were fake. They weighed two hundred pounds and were propelled by nitrous oxide. So obviously there were some real horses in mm. there, but the ones that you see falling onto spears, and it's so horrific. But, yeah, it was quite a relief to find out that they weren't real horses. Well,
1: I mean, I couldn't believe that they were. That does that seems like a thing that would have been... But at the same point, nonetheless, if you are in the same way that they weren't real animals, that they were clubbing in Chernobyl, at the same point, if you are an animal lover, you're like,
0: Oh, I don't like it. It's really it. distressing, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. like it.
1: So, yeah, my my general thing was I didn't really like this. And I do think that the dated bits of it really punched me in the face. So... What I really wanted to talk about is women in this. And we were going on about historical inaccuracy, but let's talk about two major historic inaccuracies that end up affecting the position of women in this film. And the first is the myth of Prima Nocta, in which any woman who is married, the lord or, you know, the king, depending on where they are in society, gets uh, to rape her before she is married, which is a myth. And this was pointed out at the time, obviously, that it's a myth. But what concerns me about it, and I think screams at me more now, perhaps maybe because of the world's changed a bit or because I'm a bit older. Well, I hadn't seen this before. But is that this myth is put in in order that women can be raped and then motivate their husbands to rise up against the English. So it's yeah, actually... It's sort of frigid. Yeah, it's actually put this thing that is horrible to women in it that didn't happen... In order that they could ethereally accept their fate, weirdly, one of them does. Just
0: to put in, not arguing with you, but it's not necessarily a myth. It is suspected it happened, but there is not enough evidence for people to say definitively that it did happen. So interesting when it's about rape, I think that it's a lack of evidence means that they've gone, "Well, well, we're not really sure it did happen. But it was definitely something that has been mooted in stuff outside of Braveheart. But I agree with your point completely. That aside, I agree completely. It is like, it just felt like fridging. And obviously, his missus does get fridged. Yeah, but yeah, it is this. Oh, women are just pawns, and yeah. women are pawns in like so often in war situations. So it seems weird that they had to put something in that wasn't true when there are so many things that, true. that happen to women. Yeah, uh,
1: and the second historical inaccuracy that grinds on because of where it leaves women is the stuff about Isabella, who clearly was like not even an adult when any
0: of this stuff happened, was never sent to negotiate. It's preposterous. But just in case someone else hasn't seen it, Isabella is the princess. She's married to Longshanks's son, who yeah. is clearly gay. Uh, but I'm sure we'll talk about homophobia in a little while. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what irks me about it is that there's a scene in which Wallace is surprised to see that there's a woman standing there, which he fucking would be, right? That's actually historically yeah. accurate. And then mm-hmm. she says, what, you won't negotiate with a woman? This fake feminist stance, you know, that she's there being mighty. When all the the only reason they've done it with that character is in order to put her in a situation
0: where Wallace can bang her. I know, I know. And also just how insipid it is when that happens. And he goes, why? This is the second time you've warned me. Why would you do this? And she goes, it's because when you look at me like that. And it's like, well, you did it before you met him, mate. So mm. that that's not a thing. It's not a the thing. sex
1: in this was nauseating. I mean, it's definitely hilarious. that soft focus, missionary position sex that all films in the 80s had. And then that just excruciating sex waterfall scene earlier in it. I mean, Sex Waterfall, I was going to make that a topic, but I don't know how many films that will come up in, to be honest.
0: (laughs) Also, I'm glad you mentioned that, actually, because something that bugged me while I was watching it. So, Wallace is after Murren, who is a made-up character, this woman, that they meet when his dad dies so he's supposed to be about nine or ten and she's supposed to be about six she gives him a thistle apparently they're in love forever from then which is fucking weird and I feel the same way about childhood sweethearts no offense to anyone who's got one but it's weird and he's like always loved her since then her dad won't let him court her and I'm like how old are we supposed to believe these people are, right? Because Mel Gibson was 39 when Braveheart his, was filmed. His forehead is so liney, so
1: Corrugated. liney. And you're like, yeah. are we supposed to believe he's like just come back for the first time?
0: So what he's 18 or something? Yeah, I think we're supposed to think he's a teenager and that she's a teenager and she is 14 years old younger than Mel Gibson in real life I think it's Catherine McCormack so she was 25 when it was filmed and yeah neither of them are passable as these sort of teenagers running around behind their parents back it was it was hilarious yeah and there was no need for it to get her tits out in that waterfall no need at all
1: what they were wearing reminds me of some stuff that I had to wear in the 1980s some sort of mock velvet stuff that's got like that had like dense in it that must have been in the 80s because when i can remember having to go to a wedding and me and my sister had the same dress but in different colors and it was made of that came with a had, yeah. plastic belt around the yeah the waist i had
0: that as well mm. yeah uh
1: yeah. what gerald mcsorley is wearing when the battle kicks off in that sterling isn't it is hilarious it looks oh, full-on when... monty python when
0: he's playing um he looks like john cleese in like uh monty python yeah. and the holy grail yeah. yeah uh but also the guy who
1: kind of looks a bit like rowan atkinson at the start of that but the first time he's in the scene that's quite a black, Adder- black adderish performance i was like is that right? when is- atkinson under there but obviously it wasn't um yeah, some
0: sort of the the sort of battle wear hats particularly are ridiculous are, the, are you talking about the one that's got like three long strands or are you talking no, I'm about... talking about
1: the ones that go up like that, almost like a bishop's mitre, hat. but then it yeah, come, came, comes all round here. So they're basically looking up underneath it, which seems the design Doesn't flaw. seem practical, does it? No, it doesn't but seem it's better than those little tin hats that they've got that people would just donk them on the head and they appear to do nothing.
0: <laughs> that was like wearing like well, a sardine
1: can on their head. Well,
0: it seems like if you donk them on the head when they're wearing one of those, that is the thing that slices through their head. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess we need to talk a little bit about Mel Gibson. He, you know, hasn't been a very nice character. He's said some pretty horrific things about Jewish people and about wanting his ex-girlfriend to be raped and about domestic violence. It's hard to watch knowing that because as ridiculous as it is, his performance is quite endearing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it is very difficult for me to separate you know, Mel Gibson from this film, to be honest. I don't know if that's doable. I think you would... I mean, obviously, I was talking to Yosra earlier about looking at films in a new way. I think I would have had to have seen this before Mel Gibson became a public monster to have any other opinion of it other than, well, he's a public monster.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think that you've, you've nailed it there.
1: So I'm going to say DATED.
0: I'm going to say dated as well. Dated and really fucking long.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what's next? You've been having a scout around to see what else is having a big pop culture anniversary.
0: Yes. And it is another, it's another film that has absolutely fallen into the pop culture pantheon for various reasons, including one very key scene. And that is 1990s Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore, Sexy Pots, Ghost. Yeah. Yeah question how old does that make it 30? 30 30 30 years I don't think I've seen it
1: since it came out 30 years ago
0: I think I saw it quite a few times when it, I was young I must have only been like yeah 13 I think I watched it quite a lot and it was my stepdad's favorite film uh, for very sad reasons but yeah I haven't seen it for decades I'm gonna hate it aren't I I think so yeah which you know I'm excited about. <laughs> <laughs>
2: funded issue for all women.